Get your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 is where we're going to start. And I'll, I'll read a pretty sizable section of this, of this uh, teaching here. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 to 14, 12. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love, pursue love, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is unintelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none, without, none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. The word of the Lord. I want, I want to start with three different prophetic ministries, prophetic moments that have built up resurrection specifically to kind of just give you a, a picture and maybe partly by way of personal testimony in terms of I was a witness to all three of these things. Um, the first one starts, and if you've been through First Steps, you've heard this. I'll give a briefer version, but the first one starts with the probably one of the most important decisions that will ever be made in church rescue history, which was led by Father William Beasley and Anne, who was rector at the time, which was to disassociate from the Episcopal Diocese of Chicago. You guys are now so removed, 27 years, from that decision that there's no way you could even begin to understand why that'd be a big deal. Not that you couldn't intellectually get there, but we were an Episcopal church in a diocese of Chicago. We had a bishop. Um, our priest had made vows to that bishop, like all deacons and priests make vows to me to obey, to be in submission. We had lived our lives in that diocese. We've been planted in that diocese in 1954. This was our world, our life. And then to our absolute horror, the diocese began to make public, public their departure. And the bishop made public his departure from the faith once delivered. And that created a crisis here at Resurrection. We went through that crisis. We realized that the ultimate nature of the crisis is that the diocese and the bishops was departing from biblical authority therein, abdicating his authority as bishop because all bishops' authority is derivative. It all derives from Holy Scripture and from the authority of the church as she herself was under Holy Scripture as per our Anglican understanding of the Word of God being authority over all things, even the church, who we exalt and extol and thank God for and her great authority. So, 
we made a decision to disassociate from the Diocese of Chicago. And it was, and now it might even seem clean and clear, why wouldn't you? But no one else was leaving. Everyone else was like, well, we're going to separate from a bishop. We're not going to follow that bishop. We're going to stay in the Episcopal Church. That's our church. Why would you ever leave? So there was a lot of theological dynamics and questions in play, even within our own church. So we needed something from the Lord. We needed a prophetic ministry of the Lord, a word, an experience that confirmed for us, you're doing the right thing. You're not being schismatic. You're not being separatist, which is very important for many evangelicals who had come from backgrounds they felt were separatists, and now they'd come into what they thought was Reformed Catholicity, and now we're doing what they felt their evangelical forebears had always done. So why should we do this again? It was really complicated. So the Bishop of Chicago came for his annual visit to our church. He was going to speak with the vestry afterwards. And there was a whole question, like, do we take communion? Like, some people follow their conscience. I am going to take communion. He, you know, ex opera operate. The Eucharist is still ministered by him. He's a false shepherd. I can't. This is the world that he walked into on this morning in 1993. So they are lined up to process in. And we used to line up on the backstage of a... Uh, at the high school in West Chicago is where we were meeting them. They were lined up in the credence table, which is the table that holds the carafts and the bowls with the to-be-consecrated host and wine was right here. And the bishop was right here in, in the last position. As, as they began to walk in, literally with no provocation of anything with, from the table, the table buckled. It just buckled. It was likely an angelic being who sort of, you know, hit the, hit, hit the legs of it. The table buckled, the craft that held the wine fell onto a soft wooden floor, it was like a stage floor, and didn't crack but shattered. The host, to be consecrated, fell and rolled and landed at the feet of the bishop. That story would be told later to those of us who weren't there, and Father William was there. I wasn't an eyewitness to that, I was in, I was in the congregation that morning that we now knew that God was telling us prophetically, communion has been broken with your bishop. We knew that biblically. We'd done our Bible work. We knew it ecclesiastically. We'd done our church history work. But we needed to come after those most important things. We did our Bible work and our church work, right? That's how we think as Anglicans. Bible work, church work, right? But we needed prophetic ministry to confirm, to amplify the teaching of the revelations of the Scripture, and it did. Next story. We were in the, and you guys know part of the epic, but the epic process of needing to get into some kind of a building. And I think God gave me this process as a, as a rector back in the day because so many of our church plants and rectors go through the process of also needing to find permanent space. And 25 years, we were mobile at resurrection. And so we were desperate for, for space. And we heard the Wheaton Bible Church, um, which was on Main Street before it was on North Avenue, was selling their building. And so we met with Wheaton Bible leaders, and there was already a strong negotiation with St. John's Lutheran who ended up buying the church. So we knew that we were kind of coming at the tail end, but we met with them. We were praying about, would that be the space that God would have for us? It was so big. It was, you know, we were about maybe 450, 500 at that point as a church. Was it too much? We just didn't know. And so Barbara Gautier, who I think you all know, intercessor, woman of God, quiet, gentle spirit. Barbara likes things small and smaller. She likes small groups. She likes, you know, one-on-one -on -one contact. As Resurrection's grown, she's gone with us all the way, but it's been a challenge for her personality-wise. Barbara's out there interceding. She's doing a, a um, Jericho walk. She just kind of walked seven times around. Not that we Bible Jericho, um, but she's walking seven times around, just praying, Lord, would you give this to us? 
like you gave to the people of God, Jericho. And the Lord prophetically speaks to Barbara's spirit, and she thinks she has a, a word of wisdom, which is, um, this is too small. I want to give her something bigger. And Barbara came and shared that word with me. And this, this is like what I call, you know, a Nixon going to China, where you would not expect back in the 70s politics that Richard Nixon <clears throat> would be the one who would actually negotiate and go to China. He was kind of law and order and, you know, Cold War. That was his deal. But he actually goes to China. Everyone's shocked. It's Bill Clinton and welfare. Bill Clinton's a Democratic president. He's not supposed to actually reform welfare, but he did. It's like one of these moments where God does something or people do a contrasting thing of what you would expect them to do. And that was Barbara Gauthier. It was my Nixon going to China moment. I'm like, Barbara Gauthier, who I now think about at least from time to time as Barbara, megachurch Gauthier, it's not big enough. What's her word of wisdom? And that built up our church. We went, you want to give us something bigger than Wheaton Bible? What's bigger than Wheaton Bible? We'll be anywhere near in the Wheaton area to be bigger than Wheaton Bible. We had no imagination that this is here five blocks from Wheaton Bible. Prophetic word. Third one. Um, we get into the building, and it's the consecration of the building night. It was a historic night at Church of the Resurrection. Glorious, glorious night in, um, in Advent of 2012. We're celebrating. We're finally in. <laughs> it's just like after 25 years of waiting, we're finally in a building that God has given us. The Lord did it. It's a work of God. It's a miracle. We're celebrating all this. And one of, of, of the brothers in the church, one of our leaders, lay leader, has a prophetic word. He comes to me and says, Bishop, I think I have a prophetic word. I was a bishop. Father said, I have a prophetic word. Um, oh, yeah? What's your sense of? He says, I actually think I have a prophetic word that we're supposed to send people out, even though we're gathering for the first time ever in our own space. It's a sending word. I said, I think that's of the Spirit. Please give it, Nate. So Nate gave this powerful word that many of us would be sent out. From that point, we've planted Emmanuel, City of Light, Christ Church Madison, and now Fox Cities. Four churches have been planted since that prophetic word was given. On the night of gathering, the word from Jesus was, spread, <laughs> multiply, go out from here. Those are all prophetic words, and you can see each one of them built up the church. Each one of them edified. Each one of them, if you will, was extra scriptural insofar as there wasn't anything in the Bible to say, now resurrection should send out you know, churches. And I don't mean to overemphasize that point, but I think it's important because we live by the Bible, but the Bible doesn't tell us everything we need to know in every circumstance specifically, which is why the Lord's given us prophetic ministry, is we're applying the scriptures. We'll get into more definition around that. So here are the two things I want for you to do today, okay? The first is, I want to ask you as I teach to do your own Bible work, which I always expect you to do, do your own Bible discernment. I always expect that from you, to, to decide just how high of a priority should prophecy have in your biblical worldview? I'm going to argue for a very high priority of the life of prophecy within our biblical worldview. So first thing I want you to do is put a high priority on biblical prophecy. The second thing I want to do today is I want us to practice it. So we're going to do some ministry together. We're going to listen for one another, and we're going to do prophetic ministry as we listen to the Lord together. So we're going to prioritize prophecy. We're going to practice prophecy. All right. So... Why do I want to argue that we prioritize prophecy? Because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does. So in his, just the culmination of the poem of 1 Corinthians 13, he culminates in, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You guys know that the chapters and verses were put in during the Reformation. They're very helpful to us, but they are not original to the writing of Scripture. So Paul doesn't say, now I'm going to stop and put a one and a four, and take a big breath or stop reading here and pick it up tomorrow morning or whatever it is. No, 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 no. 
this is actually, this is actually problematic in, in this particular case, that we think these two are separated. 1 Corinthians 13 should be, I mean, not every single wedding, but should always be studied with 1 Corinthians 14. The greatest of these is love. Pursue love. Well, of course it should be. I mean, Paul's just continuing his thought. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially he may prophesy. This is unbelievable. Okay, so look at look what he does inductively, right? Inductive is that we have a triangle where the big parts up here and the small parts up here, right? Deductive when you flip it and you start with something specific and get something general. Okay, Paul's being inductive. He starts up here. Faith, hope, and love. This is what matters the most. Oh my goodness, okay, great. Then he goes down a little bit more. But the greatest of these are love. Oh, okay, great. Pursue love. Oh, it's an action. Okay, we're working down his inductive triangle, upside down triangle. Pursue love. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Whoa, we're now, now we're down here. Especially they may prophesy. Now we're right here at the point. Look at that preaching, by the way. I mean, that is genius preaching. Genius preaching. Start up here. What really matters? Big picture, big scope. He does this in, he does this in two sentences. It really is a, a, an incredibly intelligent work. Up here, he moves us down to right here within a matter of two sentences. So I have these things that matter most in my life. How do I actually live them out? I prophesy especially if you prophesy. So a great priority is put um, here. Verse 5, I want you all to speak in tongues. I do not think that Paul here is, um, is teaching what a, a doctrine that I respect and don't fully agree with, which would be that a full second blessing of the filling of the Holy Spirit always results in the speaking of tongues. Now, I say that ten tenderly because there are brothers and sisters who I deeply respect who hold that doctrine, and I think that's one that we can with full brotherhood and sisterhood disagree about. But I actually deeply honor why they hold that, because the Apostle Paul does teach that he does desire that all speak in tongues. So I do think he desires, for example, that far more Americans in the American church would speak in tongues than they, than they do. Um, <clears throat> and there's a whole other teaching I have on speaking in tongues. But even more, he says, just so we're really clear on priority, I want you to prophesy. This is stunning. Because he had, I mean, you could think that this guy is giving sugar to a diabetic. The Corinthians, they're all into tongues and prophecy. They're so into tongues of prophecy, right, that they think everything else is secondary or tertiary, including moral living, <laughs> right? So, so like, it's okay if a, if, a, if, a, if a man is engaging his son's wife sexually, like, that might be actually something that we could at least overlook. Paul's to confront them with that, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because as long as you're prophesying and speaking in tongues, you're a spirit person. And that's the life in the kingdom. You think Paul would say, okay, you know, I really believe about prophecy in tongues, but I can't teach Corinth that. Because that would be a problem in Corinth. No, this is so important. He actually takes the risk as a teacher to say, you have this in excess and I would be tempted to rein you in. But were I to do so, he uses this language in 1 Thessalonians, I would squelch the Spirit. The Spirit of God is so important in prophecy, so important in tongues, so important in the spiritual gifts, even where it's been abused and, and misused, I still have to teach it. So we are, we are operating at an incredibly high level in the Pauline framework of priority. And now you begin to understand the scandal that maybe leads for some of you no one's ever taught you about prophecy. Now, that may not be the case. Maybe everyone has been taught about prophecy. But the utter scandal that you have been walked through over and over again, how, why prophecy matters biblically, how to practice it, it's a, it's a scandal in the church. It's one of the great scandals in the church, I would say, in our day. Um, 
What does prophecy do? Well, we see that prophecy, it builds. <laughs> prophecy builds. It's like a hammer and nails. It's like super glue. It's like a design to put something together. Prophecy builds things. Three times in 12 verses, verse 3, verse 4, verse 12, it's talking about prophecy building. Ten times prophecy is mentioned in this pericope. So this is not a personality preference. Oh, there's just some who prophesy. They're, they're wired that way. This is not a personality preference. This is a priority that has this place alongside evangelism, ministry of the poor, church planting, preaching. Again, we think about this in terms of genres. We think about the Old Testament rather in terms of the actual ministry. 16 out of 39 books in the Hebrew Scriptures are prophetic books written by or orally spoken to prophets. And we're not even then mentioning things like Elijah and Elisha and their ministries, which they're not right, written prophets, so we don't, they don't even figure in in the 16 books. I mean, that's staggering. I mean, so nearly half of the Hebrew Scriptures in terms of books are prophetic. In the New Testament, we hear about prophets coming out of Jerusalem, Caesarea, Antioch, Rome, Corinth, modern-day Turkey, slash Asia Minor. Early church leader, one of the earliest church um, leaders that we know of, Polycarp, was described by those who knew him in this way, apostle and prophetic teacher. So this moves right into the life of the early church and early church fathers. Bishop Melito, in the second century, is described as, um, and, I, and I've read one of his sermons, where it's fascinating to watch it, by the way, where Melito moves from exposition into prophecy, into exposition, into prophecy. It's like totally integrated, which I never heard until I went to Africa. And then I watched African preachers, particularly some Pentecostal preachers, and they would, they would teach expositionally, then they would speak in tongues and interpret the tongue, i.e. prophecy. Then they would speak, teach expositionally. They would integrate all this back and forth. I'd never, I, I'd never heard of it. I just thought, oh, that must be unique maybe to Western African Pentecostal expression. And then I read about Melito doing this. Oh, this is awesome. It's totally integrated. It was a priority for them. Okay. Prophecy, um, not only is it a priority, it prioritizes love. So it, 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 is, it is a demonic invention, by the way, you guys, that love has the abstracted nature that it does have. It's just a demonic invention in, insofar as it intercepts linguistic realities and we hear love and we think, what is that, right? I mean, like, like, you almost always have to work your way to what love really is because it has this abstracted quality to it. I think that's honestly demonic interference um, because love is a pr profoundly concrete, right? It's, it's the blood and bones and wounds of our Lord. Like, that's, like, love is incredibly concrete. And so whenever we have this abstraction come over us, like we're teaching on love or we're thinking about love and it's abstracted and vague, just know you're okay. That's just demonic that's not true. I reject its interference in linguistic realities. I know what love is. I know who love is. I know what love is like. And in prophecy, we're given a specific action by which we can minister love. What a gift. Pursue love, especially that you may prophesy. So we all want to be loving people, if we're followers of Jesus especially. But then we get stuck in a cul-de-sac where we don't know how to actually minister, except maybe being nice. And, and being nice isn't biblical, but being kind certainly is. So it's good to be kind. It's good to be gentle. These are fruits of the Spirit. But we get stuck there. 
we don't realize that we can actually activate love in the life of a church, in, a, in our own lives, by prophesying over one another and over the church. That's how you create a loving church in part, is by having prophetic ministry, vibrant and thriving. For you guys in small groups, this is directly relevant to your small group ministry. Yeah, Matt used the language of laying on the hands. We talked about prophetic ministry. You guys are tracking with this. I want to just say, okay, now let your imagination just fill in even more, you guys. You can be teaching your students how to prophesy. Whether you call it that or not needs discretion and discernment. I, it doesn't matter if you call it prophecy. All right? you can just, uh, that may be unhelpful with some and helpful with others. But you can teach them how to hear the Holy Spirit based on biblical revelation and give an encouragement or an edification to somebody else. They can all learn it. Honestly, my kids have learned how to prophesy over each other. So we can go into a prayer time as a family, and they can lay hands on another one, and we've watched them over and over again get a word of knowledge, get an image for their sibling. It's incredible. And you go, why can't we do that? Well, of course we can. We need to. That's how we love each other. One way we love each other. Okay. This is how we understand. Pursuing prophecy is one way in which we pursue love. Now, tongues is an utterance. Prophecy is an understanding. So when we're, when, we're, when, we're, when we're teaching and we want to minister love, it's not that speaking in tongue isn't an engagement with love. It is an engagement with love. And just to clarify with tongues, right, tongues primarily are given to edify ourselves. I do not think that that's pejorative. It's easy to read that in the English. Oh, like build up myself. I don't think Paul's saying it in a pejorative way, right? It's, yeah, you build up yourself by speaking in tongues. It strengthens you in your prayer life. strengthens you in your walk with Jesus. And tongues are very, very strengthening and important in the Christian life. They're an utterance. But prophecy is an understanding, either of a tongue given through interpretation or just a prophetic word, where we understand love. Prophecy is like the work of translation. Okay? So think about prophetic ministry as translation ministry. I mean, Chrissy's family just invested their lives in this. You're translating a text into heart language. That's what you're doing in prophetic ministry. It's amazing, right? So you're taking the vernacular of people's heart, if you will, and you're taking the text of the scriptures, and you're translating the scriptures in the ministry of prophecy into someone's heart language that they can hear, an image that maybe they, they need to know. So I get teased about this incessantly by Catherine and um, Michigan. You guys probably heard this story, but I'll tell it really, very briefly. Um, there was a healing conference going on here at Res. I had been to another event. I came in late to the conference. I walked in because I wanted to just be part of the last session, but I got this really strong prophetic word. And, um, and I just knew it was of the Lord. I didn't know if I was going to get it, if I was going to speak it accurately, because you see through a glass darkly. So you can have an intuition of the Spirit and not always get it out just right. You've got to be very humble in these things because we see through a glass darkly, we speak through a glass darkly, if you will, to paraphrase Paul. But I do have something. So I went up and we were praying over people and I got up and I said, you know, there's somebody here and you were called squirrel by somebody in your family and it was a nickname that was used against you. It, it, was, a, it was an unkind nickname and you were, you were completely just crushed by it. And literally, Catherine's looking at me like, I mean, we've done this a long time, Stuart, but that's a stretch. I mean, and that's a stretch. And the other people that were ministering, like, you know how often we minister, like, people like right behind, like ministering? You, I could feel them actually stepping back like one step. Like, we're just not comfortable with this moment. Like, like we're not going to deny Stuart, but, you know, he's on his own. Right. Okay. 
<laughs> I was like, this is crazy. I mean, but, you know, but I've been to enough, like, vineyard in the conference. I'm like, this is not crazy. But I'm like, let's see what people do. So, um, but I had, this, I had this sense of translation. Like, I'm translating this, I think. Um, so, we, we, I didn't ask for them to raise their hand if they had the name squirrel. I felt like that would be, you know, <laughs> shaming, you know, or, ah, weird. So, we didn't do it. And we wrapped it up. And everyone's like, we're going to lunch to celebrate the conference. Um, we'll meet, meet, meet us here. So, I was taking investments off or whatever. And someone came to the sacrament. She said, I'm so sorry. Can I talk to you? And I said, well, yeah, what's up? That's me. I was called squirrel by my grandmother. And it was diminutive and it was unkind. I said, the Lord knows you. Like he spoke your heart language. Like that you needed the word squirrel lifted from your person. You're not a squirrel. You're a woman of the Lord. It was amazing. But what did prophecy do? It was just a translation. That's all it was. It was just a translation moment. I know you. I'm going to speak a language, a word that belongs to you. Um, and it, it goes. And I, Chris, I, I just think about, again, your folks work with the PMO people and getting the scriptures into their language so they can go. God knows us. He loves us. He sees us. That is very moving to me. And I, the work of Bible translation, I think, is so moving. And I actually feel like we, in our own way, in prophetic ministry, echo that, if you will. Not, not precisely that, but I think it's an important, I think it's analogical. Okay. When we're prophesying, and we're prophesying the ministry of love, we need to be very clear that we're not ever giving new revelation, but revelation renewed. Not new revelation. Heaven forbid. And you'll be rebuked if you do that. Not new revelation, but revelation renewed. For right now. Indeed, as, as you've often heard me teach, prophecy is the ministry of God's word now. It has a strong now. God's word is eternal, but it's ministered now in this place, in this time. It is, and this is another definition if you want to write this down, it's a divine impression given human expression. That's prophetic ministry. It's a divine impression. So it is impressionistic. It involves the faculty of the mind and the intuition it's divine. God breaks into our sin nature, into our person. We get a divine impression, and we then seek to give it a human expression. All right, let's keep going on this. Prophecy also, and so we're still under um, prioritized prophecy. Paul makes priority, prophecy a priority. I did it to you again, didn't I? Paul makes prophecy a priority. Uh, prophecy prioritizes love, and I want to say prophecy imparts understanding of our own heart. And we get even more of this, you guys, in your Bible, in the 25th verse of chapter 14. Um, he's talking about when an unbeliever enters into a, a, a prayer meeting. It's, it's just a beautiful picture. I'm sure this is what happened, and Paul's just recounting an actual event. If all prophesy, and an unbeliever, an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is true both for unbelievers and believers. Eves Conger, Roman Catholic theologian who's written a seminal uh, theology of the Holy Spirit, Eves Conger writes this, the effect of the Holy Spirit is to make the recipient open to the truth of God and the truth of what he is himself. The effect of the Holy Spirit, Conger writes, it's to make the recipient open to the truth of God and the truth of what he is or she is, him or herself. Which is to say, the work of prophecy, which can operate in our own lives when we're 
Bible reading or prayer is to have, come under conviction, clear conviction of sin. The secrets of the heart, as Paul said in verse 25 of chapter 14, are disclosed. Whenever the Holy Spirit searches everything, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, even the depths of God. Now, this is true about our own hearts, this is true about the hearts of other people. So when we move into this realm then where the Holy Spirit may be revealing something about somebody else's heart, we now move into a place of delicacy. We do not move into a no-go zone ever, but we do move into a place of delicacy and of sensitivity. Indeed, we read, look again at verse uh, 3, you guys, of chapter 14. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. This isn't to say that sometimes receiving a hard word may not bring consolation, but it is moving toward that. So prophetic ministry can be profoundly misused at this point, particularly if somebody has issues around in their own lives around control, power, undue influence over somebody. It can be significantly misused here. But if it's used properly, then God can indeed provide for our own, in our own lives or for somebody else a, a seeing or a knowing understanding and a coming under conviction so that we can be consoled. So it always moves towards consolation. It always moves towards encouragement. It always moves towards upbuilding. Prophecy reveals woundedness in our lives. So um, one of the most important prophetic seasons where I received prophetic ministry was when I first came to resurrection after having been far from God I've been away from God for four years, and people would lay hands on me, and they would prophesy over me, and they would get discernment about wounds in my life or demonic strongholds in my life, and they would speak them to me. I am so happy that people at Resurrection knew how to prophesy because I don't know how I would have learned them otherwise. I don't think I would have, by the way. This is a high-stakes reality for the church to know. Who would have, who would have told me? how the particular woundings of my background and my family of origins and my own sinful decisions was affecting me now. I needed laying on of hands. I need people with wisdom and delicacy, maturity to actually tell me those things. Intervene in my life. I mean, again, Americans, we, 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 live, in, we live in such a <clears throat> you know, bubble existence where I don't dare come into your bubble. You don't dare come into my bubble because that's impolite. That's intervention. That's, you know, that's too close. That is, that is just a profound cultural sin. People have got to come close into our lives when we invite them and we're willing to invite them. They've got to come close into our lives. They've got to speak into our lives, both relationally and prophetically, so we can get free. If not, we'll never get free. We'll never get free without prophetic ministry like that. We can have the scriptures. We can have salvation. I'm not saying that we can't have a fundamental freedom. But I am saying that applied freedom to learn to become people who can love and receive the love of God the Father must have prophetic ministry. It must have the willingness to come close enough, to take risks enough for me to get up in front of 300 people and say, I think somebody here was named Squirrel. What's the worst that could have happened there? I got it wrong. I didn't force it on anybody. And I looked silly. That's the worst that could have happened that day is I look silly. I look like I got it wrong. Well, we got to get over that in prophetic ministry quickly because when we do hear the Lord accurately and we express it with some love accuracy, people get right with the Lord. They can enter into righteousness. Uh, as prophecy imparts understanding of our own heart, um, it can also reveal calling. 
So again, we're in the own heart section still. It also can reveal calling. It can help, it can help us to, to build up and help edify around the nature of somebody's ministry in the Lord. Now again, here's, here's a warning here. Um, I am always very suspicious, and there, there are seasons of prophetic ministry in the church over the years where, um, and I, I don't see it as much right now, but it's worth mentioning, where well, I think what happens in, in, in our persons, in our bodies, I won't say our flesh, i.e. sinful nature, but it's in our persons, we see giftedness in somebody, all right? We see ability in somebody, and we, we notice that. And what can happen in the spirit if there is a need to gain their affirmation toward us or a need to have a connection with them or whatever it might be, is that somebody can step into that person's life and actually prophesy great things over them. And I find that to be very problematic. And I have known many who have like, been prophesied over in their early 20s. This is what's going to happen. This is what God's going to do. This is the platform he's going to give you. And they live under the burden of that. They live under the pressure of that. For the rest of their lives. And also what enters in then is the sin of pride and a sin of grandiosity. It can play right into the sin nature of pride and it just grows and develops over time. When indeed, when we're praying to somebody's calling, we have to remember the Beatitudes. So you're, remember, because we're only amplifying revelation. So we're praying to people's lives that they may be poor in spirit, that they may be meek, that they may learn how to mourn with those who mourn, that, that they may be pure in heart. Like that's what you're praying into, which isn't to say that we may not have an intuition prophetically that God's calling you into something. I think we do pray into that. I think we bless it. We strengthen it. But we have to understand um, that, that it can get worldly if we're not careful and all of a sudden we have them platformed and we have them with massive influence and, and that kind of a thing. Again, this may not have been an experience for you, but I've prayed for too many people who were, I think, overall benignly prophesied over, and it has actually shut them down to prophecy, and shut them down to their ministry and their calling. They live with a sense of failure. And the fact of the matter is, maybe they're living poverty of spirit. That's <laughs> in Jesus' way. Nobody knows who they are, but nobody's supposed to know who we are. I mean, it's like, there's very, very, very few Christians who should be known beyond a certain circle of any, for anything that Jesus may be known. Um, and again, that runs deeply countercultural to... American celebrity culture, but that's just noxious. That's, that's just poison. And the world, we run from that. Um, but prophecy can, with those caveats that I've given, but I, I don't want to keep you also from saying, I do have a sense that the Lord is calling you into this. You should do that for each other. You need to do that for each other. Just check it. <laughs> just check where worldliness, worldliness may be coming in. All right. So now we say, let's earnestly desire. Verse 1, chapter 14. We want to earnestly desire prophecy. So how do we practice this? Well, first of all, before there's any actual practice of it, prophecy has to come out of a life of the Bible and of prayer and of fasting, which is to say spiritual poverty embodied, right? Fasting is just embodying your spiritual poverty. That's all you're doing. All right. So, so, out of, so, so we live lives in the scripture. We live lives in prayer. We live lives in, in spiritual poverty. And, and that's what gives a foundation for doing any kind of prophetic ministry. Okay, let's go somewhere that's kind of confusing, but I think it's important to talk about. And I don't understand all of this, but I see it scripturally. I don't understand why Saul, as king, was understood to carry anointing, even after he moved into a place of rebellion, he engages the witch of Endor. I mean, he's, he's clearly walked outside of God's way. And yet, as king, and kind of one of the key ways you understand anointing in the Hebrew scriptures are of the kings and the prophets that are actually anointed for this work, He's understood to carry some kind of anointing. Insofar as David, right, 
is extremely upset when Saul is killed and the killer of Saul exalts in that. And David's aghast. You killed God's anointed. So we have this example where we find that even God's anointing can still hold in some capacity, or at least for some season, or people can actually operate prophetically, even with a significant amount of power at times, and yet not have the necessary and engaged godliness. I don't fully understand it, but I've seen it for too many years not to mention it. Why do I mention it here? Well, obviously, we want to run from that. And at some point, the judgment of God will come. And at some point, the dissipation of one's private life um, will, will match up with the dissipation of fruit. I, I, I do believe that, you know, ultimately, a good tree bears good fruit. Wisdom is known by her children. So these things do catch up, and scriptures teach that. We will reap what we sow. But there does seem to be sometimes an interim time um, where there's still some kind of power or anointing or spiritual gifting in the interim where you haven't fully reaped what, you've been, what you're currently sowing. I don't understand it. Maybe it's God's mercy. Maybe it's God's grace. It can also be very confusing for us as followers of Jesus, particularly if you've been around people that operate prophetically with incredible accuracy. And you get to know more about their lives, and you're like, now I'm really confused. Well, that's confusing. I'm just saying, don't do that. Yeah, that's probably the clearest way to put it. Um, we don't want to be that, right? We want to run from that. We want, to, we want to have that full integration because we do know ultimately a good tree will bear good fruit. So we do this. Okay, so we prepare for it by just living our lives in Jesus. We practice it, too, by imparting with humility. And, um, and so we do have this in verse 13, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 12. For we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So that well-known verse, isn't it amazing that it's connected to the ministry of love, which is connected to the ministry of prophecy, textually? We now see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part... And I shall know fully, even if I've been fully known, so not faith, hope, and love abide. So we're just, all we're doing here is just careful, exegetical, textual work, where we see that this verse connects with the other verses to come, which is to say, I would say, part of how we practice prophecy is that we see in a mirror dimly. It doesn't mean we don't see in a mirror. It doesn't mean we don't prophesy. But it means that we use discretion um, in how we're ministering prophetically. Where are some places for discretion? So one place I think where we need to be discreet in how we minister prophetically is in life and death situations. Um, this isn't to say, again, that we don't prophesy over somebody who has a terminal diagnosis. We do need to prophesy over them. But we need to do so with maturity. So if you're newer in prophetic ministry and you have a prophetic word for somebody who's given a terminal diagnosis, you want to work that prophetic word through with other people before you would ever deliver it. Um, again, I love that we practice prophecy, but I've also seen folks who want to practice prophecy and say a terminal diagnosis, and they'll come to them and say, um, you know, uh, uh, they'll, they'll quote scripture, this one will not lead to death. And I've seen the person die. So what happened? Through a mere dimly? Yes. Lack of discretion? Likely. Because um, we also know that, that we're all going to die. We also know that death is the last enemy. We also know that whether I live or whether I die, I proclaim Christ until he comes, right? I mean, like we got to do our Bible work. So when you get into a life and death situation, for example, people can, with great and good intent, try to bring in a prophetic word that can actually bring confusion. Again, we prophesy, but we do so with discretion. We do so with care. We allow for discernment. No prophet is accurate 100% of the time. It's just not possible. 
So we're always discerning. So you guys have watched this. Have you been at Res? You've seen this. Um, if you haven't, you, you will. Where if somebody has a prophetic word, even among our clergy, you always share that prophetic word with somebody, like maybe on the chancel or somebody comes up, or we're doing like a res fast, we're hearing prophetic words. You share it with somebody else. So we want all our prophetic words filtered before they're given. And ultimately, if of ideal, and sometimes things break open and you can't do it all quite this way in order, I like to have a priest um, test every word because of their anointing and their authority in the Lord and their order, like what God gave them as a priest. I like to have it tested, but we can't always get that done that way. So if it's tested by, by a spiritual mother or father who has, you know, credibility, I'm, I'm good with that. But we want these things tested. We want to allow for discernment. When we impart then, we impart with peace. We impart with a consolation, verse 5. We also see the language of peace used in verse 33. Um, let's see, here we go. No, it's not verse 33. What am I working off of? Oh, it must be three. I just doubled my, my, my words. Um, upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. So um, it, it doesn't say that prophetic word won't stir at first. So when one receives a prophetic word, it may not be that you have an immediate experience of peace. So you want to allow that to be the case because sometimes obviously the Lord stirs before he consoles. But it should ultimately lead, as you reflect on that prophetic word, to some level of closeness with the Lord, which of course is the very nature of peace, is closeness with the Lord. So we want, we want to see that imparting happen that way. When we actually give the imparting, again, we don't need to be charged about these things. Um, we don't need to be overly emotional about these things. We actually want to be quite reasoned. Um, and sometimes I think if, for some personality types, if they're insecure about prophesying, they'll actually try to add extra oomph. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I'm, I'm insecure, so I want to, like, bring an extra, you know, maybe change, change how my voice sounds when I'm doing this, or um, greater volume, or whatever it might be. We must resist that temptation. If it's a prophetic word, it's a prophetic word. And it'll, it, it, it'll bear fruit apart from our emotional um, specific, you know, how we give it. When we practice this, um, not only do we, you know, because I've done like kind of our lives of scripture, fasting, and prayer, in part with humility, in part with peace, we impart with particularity. This is a very interesting teaching from Paul in verse 7. Distinct notes like the bugle, distinct notes like the flute or the harp. In other words, we want to do our best and this takes growth in prayer ministry, but we want to do our best to actually impart with particularity. So it's not wrong to say I have a sense that, you know, like if I've got 500 people, and I've had to do this sometimes because the Lord tells me to, but I'm always like, oh, I, this feels very in particular, Lord, unparticular. But like if I have 500 people, then you say I have a sense somebody here has an issue with their dad. I mean, it doesn't take prophecy. You have 500 people there. I mean, it's a sinful world. People have issues with their dads. Um, so I still do that sometimes if the Lord tells me to. But instead, we want to try to hear from the Lord. Okay, Lord, I'm sending that maybe issues with dads here. Is there anything else you would tell me about that? Anything else that might help people specifically? Um, I sense we have an issue with people who may, who their fathers actually did not manage the household funds well. And that's made it hard for you to trust the generosity of your father in heaven. If I were to hear that. Okay, we just moved from dads, which even skeptics can always be like, anybody knows that, to particularity. And now maybe that is me. 
And wow, I did have that, right? So as we're discerning and listening to the Lord in our listening relationship, we want to ask the Lord for as much particularity as possible. Um, one teacher I've heard puts it, you want the surgeon's knife, not neosporin cream. So you're not just like putting the cream all over somebody, you know, like his father Keith Hartzell puts it that way. Instead, you want to kind of have some kind of, you know, boom, like, I think it's this. Now, there's more risk in that, and you may not get it quite right, and that's why actually in prophecy you can also interact. So someone gives you that, and you say, well, you know, that wasn't exactly how it was. It was more like this. And you're going, okay, well, great. I mean, so that's the Lord. I just didn't get it quite right. So you're operating with that humility, but you did get the particularity started. Um, when we impart as well, and we practice prophecy, we do so with a willingness to risk. So it will require risk. Um, and so what we have to do here as we're getting into prophetic ministry and prophetic life is we cannot overestimate the val- excuse me, yeah, overestimate the value of a tidy life. Prophetic ministry does not lead to a tidy life all the time. In other words, I'm, not, I'm talking about not just isolated, I'm going to maybe share a prophetic word with you, but just entering into prophetic ministry in your whole life. Things get disrupted. You get sent somewhere to minister where you hadn't thought you would. You're in a whole listening relationship with the Holy Spirit under the authority of the Scriptures. And when the Holy Spirit comes and takes you somewhere, you just go, yes. And you don't know where it will always lead you. This is both in terms of life decisions. This is in terms of ministry works and ministry calling. So what can happen when you begin to practice prophecy is you have to enter into a willingness to risk and you can't overvalue the tidiness of life. The Apostle Paul did not have a tidy life. Um, and I say that because I am one, I am a quintessential Midwesterner. I love a tidy life. I yearn for a tidy life. Um, but I can still get caught in self-pity. I get caught in self-pity of why can't I have a tidy life? Um, why can't I have a garage as organized as I would love to have a garage? Um, I would love that life. I really would. And again, it's not that order is wrong or that it isn't wrong to have days where you organize things. But overall, I've had to sacrifice the level of tidiness that I would like for trying to live in a prophetic life, um, which, again, gets you into all kinds of situations and circumstances. All right, we're going to just finish with a few barriers. Number th- Roman numeral three, a uh, few barriers. Um, the first is intimidation. It's just intimidating. So it's just really good just to identify this is intimidating to enter into this. The other barrier is perfectionism. You will not get this perfect. Nobody gets an A in prophetic ministry. You cannot be perfect at this. If perfectionism is a major besetting sin for you, then you will likely have a barrier to prophesying over other people and sharing prophetically. Third barrier. This is a big one. Authority. So if you have your own specific issues with authority and challenges with living under people's authority, you will have a hard time entering into prophetic ministry because prophetic ministry is exercising authority. And if you're not good at being submitted to authority, you'll have a hard time exercising authority. That goes across the board, by the way, in terms of just life, right? So, um, you know, why could the Lord minister so profoundly into the centurion's life? He understood authority. He had men under him, he said. And I recognize you, Rabbi, as one who has authority. You can heal my servant. So when it comes into prophetic ministry, if you yourself struggle with spiritual authority, people operating in spiritual authority, again, maybe it's been abused, maybe it's been confusing. Those are real issues that need healing and clarity and working through. I, I want to see that happen for all of us. But if you work through those things and you're still in a place where you can't accept spiritual authority, you'll have a hard time exercising yourself. 
and you'll back off from it. You won't want to do it. A fourth barrier is your own ability to receive. Are you just a person that has a hard time receiving? Do you have a hard time receiving a compliment? Do you have a hard time receiving direction? Do you have a hard time um, receiving feedback? Do you have a hard time receiving? Do you feel vulnerable when you receive? This is a very significant life issue. I realize that. But I have to bring it up when I'm talking about prophetic ministry because in prophetic ministry, you're receiving from the Lord a prophetic word, a word of wisdom, a, a word of knowledge, a word of encouragement. You're receiving that. So in prophetic ministry, you're in a receptional place where you're vulnerable, right? To be a place, to be one who receives is to be one who's in a vulnerable position. So if receiving is difficult for you, um, then that could be a barrier that will need to be worked through in the Lord. As, as others prophesy and minister over to you, so intimidation, perfectionism, authority, receiving are all potential barriers that the Lord wants to move in our lives. He wants to, to just lovingly dismantle those barriers so that we can do what? Pursue love. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. All right, you guys, so what I want to do now, it's about 10.20, so we'll take a break at about 10.30 and um, get, get a good break that'll give us, um, you know, with, with, we have a good long break at that point, and then we'll come back and we'll move into pairs and we'll minister to one another, uh, and then we'll come back and give testimony about that. So that'll be our, our, our second part of, part of our time together. So before we do that, let me give you guys a chance for questions, dialogue, discussion. We can take 10, 15 minutes on that. Um, stuff that's banging around in your head, experiences you've had. I mean, this could be, that's wide ranging. So if you just want to come, kind of want to talk about when it comes to thinking about this, this type of ministry. And I will repeat the questions for our Minnesota brothers and sisters. Or discussion points. Yeah, Caleb. Because it's just repeating this. Because it's just repeating what scripture right. says. So they right. use that as like a logic. Yeah. To say, well, prophecy doesn't happen. Right? Yeah. Or I think it's more, it sounds more like a cessationist type of, yeah. of a statement. Um, are they just misunderstanding what, and, and that always rubbed me the wrong way because of this passage. Right. Because, of, because I'm just like, what is Paul talking about there? He's yeah. calling for us to prophesy. And you're yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah, yeah. So Kilo is basically asking, um, you know, how do we kind of think through a cessationist paradigm 
And actually the question that sort of stems from that, which we may have encountered, and I think other people have encountered that, which is, if you're prophesying you've got it wrong, that's, I'll, I'll, this is my language, that's dangerous or unhelpful. If you're prophesying you get it right, you're just saying the scriptures because you're just reading the scriptures forward. What's the point? So I think two things. One is, yes, we have to make a decision if we're going to accept a cessationist premise or not. And the premise would be that there was an era and a dispensation for the ministry and activity of the Holy Spirit. That's how you explain Pentecost. That's how you explain the signs and wonders. That was that era. That was that dispensation. That dispensation has you know, ceased, and now we're in a different dispensation. A dispensation of the Holy Spirit, to be fair to cessationists. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. At least I'm not saying it doctrinally. I'm not saying it doctrinally. Um, but now we're in a different era. So again, we have to work that through. And again, I think you're right. I mean, one has to do a whole lot I, I, would, I would say of um, eisegesis, which is to say interpreting into the scriptures as opposed to interpreting from, out, from the scriptures. You do a lot of eisegesis and a lot of especially enlightenment premises, which is not that all the enlightenment was bad. Thank God for much of the enlightenment. It helped us to become better thinkers and, and actors in some ways, but also had an enterprise wherein, right, um, we subscribe to a rational mindset at the expense of our personhood. And so you have an enlightenment enterprise in which many who have embraced cessationism, I would argue, have also embraced, I think unwittingly and unintentionally, an enlightenment model as well. And in doing so, have moved outside of uh, a Hebraic um, worldview and into a more kind of uh, a neo-Hellenistic enlightenment worldview. So we got a worldview clash there, as you've identified so well. And of course, we have this teaching from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, but once we also move outside of that, we begin to realize, well, wait a second, again, this is how they did everything. So not just do we have Paul teaching this, I mean, the disciples are taught to go and to minister in signs and wonders. Um, wonders and signs follow the apostolic ministry everywhere it goes. Um, you know, we see John developing an incredible theology of the Holy Spirit in the Johannine epistles, right? So this is actually totalized. And then for us as Anglicans, we would want to at least encourage our Presbyterian family. Our Baptist family may not be as inclined, depending on their Baptist, particular Baptist roots, the early church. Um, and there are Baptists that are really respecting that, particularly if they're kind of a Timothy George Baptist protégés. The early church is very engaged in this, as per even my Polycarp and Melito references, and there's many, many more. I mean, you get into Benedict and his ministry, and in Benedict, you find, by the way, you find the first three S's in Benedict. He's deeply scriptural. He is deeply committed, of course, to the church and the sacraments of the church. But he's also operating in signs and wonders. There's incredible wonders and signs that follow Benedict's ministry. He's 500s. So you could have watched this just play out. Um, so I'd say that then to that comment specifically, I think where we want to challenge that is that prophecy is more than teaching. And so where some reform thinkers who are not cessationist will, will land is they don't want to be cessationist. They feel like they can't make that biblical argument, but they do feel like prophecy is primarily a teaching ministry. And reform teachers I've heard who I really respect, that's where they land. And again, I say, okay, I'm more comfortable with that than no prophetic ministry. Um, but it does seem like the Apostle Paul separates teaching and prophecy. Indeed, again, and this all is with your paradigm, but Ephesians 4 talks about teachers and then prophets. And even when you put teachers and pastors together, so there's five, four ministries, but then five ministries in Ephesians 4, prophets and teachers are clearly delineated by the Apostle Paul in his teaching there. So 
I say, ah, I think prophetic ministry has a distinction from teaching ministry. They stem from the same origin, this teaching in the scriptures, but it's something actually that has more to do with it now. Again, teachers build gospel ideas. Prophets catalyze scripture now. So I would argue, okay, no, this is not a teaching ministry, which is really what they're saying, I think. If you prophesy, you're just taking scripture. You're just teaching. Praise God. Just teach, man. Um, and we'd say, oh, yeah, just teach, but prophesy as you teach. One final thought there, and then Matt, love your thoughts, is I also think, and this is something that as you all teach Scripture more, that I'm going to want you to learn and to model when you teach Scripture, is that in nearly every case where you teach Scripture, you want to minister prophetically. We just call it ministry time. That's a great little phrase. It isn't quite as charged. But it is expectation that you will minister prophetically in some way. So do we do that after every single Sunday morning sermon? We don't, except that, of course, we move us into the Eucharist. But many, we do. Even prayers of the people will pick that up. And so we're intentional in saying prophecy and teaching are really integrated in the administration of the, of the gospel ministry. Yeah, Matt. Yeah. So Matt was just saying to, uh, about a vineyard pastor who was asked about cessationism outside of things like the vineyard, and he wasn't bothered by that because he actually believed the Holy Spirit's going to move regardless of our particular doctrinal uh, you know, conviction. He's going to move, which is a great and humble way to, to handle that. That's really powerful, and I couldn't agree more. At the same time, I mean, my only addition to that would be, of course, we also want to be coming up to squelch the Spirit. So there can also be a way the Spirit of God will move. He will not be denied his, his very personhood. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. But it is true that I think, will we be vehicles to that? Which I'm sure the vineyard pastor would have agreed with. He was just making one point. Because um, Paul was deeply concerned that we squelch the Spirit. So I think what we do get even in, let's, let's kind of bump it up a little bit and turn the heat up a little bit. I think um, in a place like Wheaton and beloved, the beloved community in Wheaton, I mean the college, I mean the community, um, but this might apply to the college as well. No one's going to be cessationist except very, very few. It's not intellectually credible for them, right? So they're not going to hold to a cessationism. They can't do that. But are they going to pursue, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts? Or would that be too disruptive? Would that be, you know, too challenging? Would that be potentially too offensive? Um, honestly, you all, I, I think the Lord has significantly farther up and further in places to take us as a diocese in this regard. I think we, even with all of our background in this, and I teach on this, and I'm open to this, and all of our pastors are open to this, and priests, um, I think we probably still have a preference for order and tidiness, which again is not an unbiblical preference. We are to do things in order, as taught by Paul later in 1 Corinthians 14. But we might have a, a human preference over 
where the Spirit of God might disrupt even more at times. Um, and and I, I long to see even more of that within our churches in, in the diocese where there's that openness that every once in a while, I mean, this happened was a year and a half ago, Bishop Todd Atkinson was here, who ministered powerfully to us, and we ended up in a three-and-a-half-hour service. Um, what you know for an American, it's really fascinating. It's almost offensive. It's really interesting. It's not, not even like it's irritating. It can't be irritating. Americans don't like when you go long. But you get to like past two, two-and-a-half hours, Americans are offended. It's fascinating. Um, like you haven't taken into consideration their day. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I plan my day, because I'm an American. Um, and the things that need to happen today. And I'm realizing, I think a growth area for all of us in diocese is going to be, how about a few more three-hour services every once in a while because the Spirit of God has moved in our midst. And, you know, not because we're sloppy. I don't like long services when you're sloppy. Um, but because the Spirit of God broke out. So I think we can even grow in this. Any, any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, Christy. And the name was accurate, too, in some way. Wasn't it like a... Yeah, it was the, the exact name. It was the exact name. I couldn't remember. I, mean, I had some relationship to a golf instructor or something. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, it was really cool. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. And then the boys that attended the residence after that. So good. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Praise like the Lord. Kind of random, like, live golf. But <laughs> 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 so good. Deacon Howard... Um, is part of VIA, which some of you, most of you may know, but we have, they haven't been able to visit us because of, they're in Canada and the borders have been shut down. But um, I am praying that I can get them here, by the way, before the end of this year, if God opens borders and allows that. Uh, I'm with them in Gregory House, among other things. I want them to come and minister to us. But they're really dear, dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. And they came out of the Pentecostal movement into Anglicanism. And they just have an incredible charism of ministering the Holy Spirit beautifully, carefully, but powerfully. Um, and Howard's got a, an incredible prophetic gift. Praise God. Yeah, Addie. Well, the Lord ministers to us personally and like is giving us a few hundred like, in our own lives. Is that falling into the same category? I think so. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think when we have a sense of, it can't just be listening prayer too, which is great to just think about it as that. But I would, more technically speaking, in terms of scriptural kind of categories, put that under prophecy. That there's a way in which he is speaking into our lives, right? It's often a divine impression that we have. We try to journal it or speak it to a prayer partner or a spouse and give it a human expression. And it build, upbuilds, it consoles, it encourages. Absolutely. So like a lot of listening prayer is, could also be thinking about as like kind of private Prophetic prayer. Would you fall into that as well, 
I think I would put it there, Caleb. Yes. I mean, again, dreams are their own, kind of their own world in the Bible, right? I mean, there's so many dreams in the Bible. But yes, I, I think, again, God speaking to us prophetically, um, to our minds and our hearts, even while we rest. So yeah, I would put it under, under that broader. And then I think it's helpful to discern. Okay, so this prophetic word has been given in a dream. It's been given in a prayer time. So I've had a revelation. So that's, that's kind of where you start. You say, I've had a revelation. Uh, excuse me, Minnesota. The question is, um, how do we think about both like listening prayer and how we receive words, listening prayer and or dreams? And we're kind of talking about this as being prophetic. So you get a revelation. Okay, I have a revelation. And you just write out what the revelation is. Then you're thinking, I need to interpret this. So what's the interpretation of this revelation? How do I understand it? Um, and it's one thing to get a, a private word added to your point and say, okay, how do I understand this? And that's going to need somebody else's help. So we need to make ourselves vulnerable and go to somebody else we trust and say, you know, this is what I think I heard in prayer. Which can be, by the way, I've been doing this for 30 plus years. I'm always still kind of embarrassed, even with Catherine. Like, I think I heard this. I don't know. It's just, it's very vulnerable. <laughs> it's very vulnerable <laughs> to share these things. My spiritual director has me write these things out now. Um, and I resisted it for quite a while because I did want to write it like on a Word document. I did want to write it on a laptop. Um, I have, I, I submitted it to him, so I'm doing it. Um, but it was hard. So <clears throat> we have these moments where it's kind of challenging, but, but we need to do that. So then we get the interpretation. Now with a dream as well, it's really good to kind of say, okay, now how do I, I have the revelation, something happened here. How do I interpret this? Um, and that's where going to spiritual elders, especially people that have gifts in this arena, are really helpful. Deacon Val has real gifts here. Catherine, Catherine has incredible uh, dream. I think she's, she's a literary kind of student and scholar or background. It's fascinating because dreams are so symbolic. Um, Christy knows this. Christy has amazing dreams. God just speaks to her through dreams. It's fascinating. Um, so you want to get that interpretation. And then you want to ask, of course, the third part, what's the application? So you walk that through very carefully in any of these things. It's a revelation that gets an interpretation that needs to have an application. Um, and being, being specific about that, not how do I apply this um, in my life, not unlike Bible study <laughs> in that way. Yeah, Will. This is one about calling or very specific. This is a story of mine that it was something I've been thinking through, especially as I started to grow in prophecy. I don't think I would have known that this was prophecy then. Yeah. But when I was in high school, my now wife, we were friends, and she's a few years older, so she was at Moody's, and I had a crush on her, and so, you know, but we were good friends, and I was praying, and I was praying for a different friend, and I ended up... Well, the t-shirt. Yeah, the t-shirt, yeah, exactly. We got this story last week from Will. Yeah, she wore some t-shirt that he was like, it was his jam. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was like, fell in love with her. <laughs> I was praying for her, and I got this sense, and it hasn't happened since, but just a sense from the Lord of their future or focus of like, in the next year, Catherine's going to go to Calcutta. Hmm. And I was like, well, that's really weird. It was like so specific. Yeah. And because at first it was India, I prayed into it, and then it was like specifically Calcutta. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this. So I just kind of like, was like, well, that was kind of weird, and I tucked it away. And then like a month later, she was back from spring break, and we hung out like we normally would and went out to lunch. And she was like, yeah, I'm thinking I have to do my like senior year internship, and I think I'm torn between either going to like somewhere in the UK, because she wanted to work with um, getting women out of sex trafficking. Mm. Mm. So I never mm. really said anything. Yeah. And I just told her about it a few years ago. Yeah. Um, like way after the fact. But 
something I've always thought is like, what do you, what do I do in a situation like that where it's like I don't want to force, right? Didn't want to force her her hand, sort of, or yeah, influence, yeah. But also sort of like, you know, why would God give me that word so specifically? What did she end up doing? She did end up doing something. She did. Well, okay. Um, so you should have shared it, as you know now. Um, but you were learning, which is great. Um, so Will just shared that he had a, a word for his then-girlfriend. Just friend at that point. Not yet girlfriend, not yet wife. Um, about her going to Calcutta. And she then shared with him later that she actually was going to go do this ministry internship or work. And one of the options was Calcutta. He didn't know how to share it, so he didn't say anything at the time. And then he... Um, she did go to Calcutta, and he's, he, t- he shared that with her. So, okay, I would put that, um, and this is the, I, I'm glad you're bringing this up because there's, there's sequencing issues sometimes with prophecy, right? This is fascinating. So I think what you were given was a word of consolation. It was a word of knowledge. It was a word of consolation under Paul's paradigm here. So um, you, and I think that when you get specificity around calling, sometimes, particularly if we have a really strong relationship, we can share it in a catalytic way. So Maybe had you all been dating or maybe even married, you might have said, honey, I got this like, Calcutta. And she's close enough with you and free enough to go, oh, okay, we hold it loosely and it doesn't happen. Glass dimly, you know, we're dimly, okay. Um, and so I think in that relationship, it might have been catalytic. I think because you were, you were friends and you weren't operating in that level, nor were you necessarily in the milieu, if this is fair to say, probably you weren't in a larger ecclesiastical milieu where this was a part of the world. You probably had a consolation world word, wherein she comes to you and says, I had the sense about Calcutta, then you can console, I did too. Now I'm, now I'm, now I'm consoled. Um, so we can catalyze the prophetic words, particularly where there's a level of trust and closeness and context, we may just console. Um, and I, I, I think both things can, can happen, and I need to teach in that, into that in this outline, because that's actually a, that, that sequence there is really helpful. Let me, let me just get a little bit of consolation, then Matt, I want to hear from you. So, um, so I was early, young. I think Kath and I were just married. I was learning prophetic ministry. I, it was a word that I got privately, Addie, like you're talking about. And I was ambitious as well, and I knew that I was ambitious. And so I got this word from the Lord in prayer that I, that I would be a bishop someday. And quite honestly, there's a whole lot of Anglican young men priests to get that word. And, um, and it's all mixed up in all kinds of stuff. And it's also, and believe me, for me it was mixed up in a whole lot of ignorance. You're like, that'd be great. Like, then I get to be the top, you know. And so you actually do it. And you realize, no, that's not what the Apostle Paul said. The apostles are last um, in the procession, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. So, um, so I got this word, and I was like, I know, I'm not enough of a need to share with anybody else, but I am going to share it with Kate's. So I got this word, and I said, but here's, here's the weird thing about the word is, I'm going to be a bishop, and I'm going to be a bishop in Tanzania. And I'm like, okay, like I'm practicing, I'm learning. I'm going to risk this bishop in Tanzania. Oh, that worked. Like white guy in Tanzania running around, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's so weird. So I share it with Catherine. Catherine rightly said, huh, I don't know. And I was like, I know. I'm with you. I, I don't know. She's like, I'm pretty uncomfortable with that. I'm like, okay, God, I'm uncomfortable too. Like, I, you know. Um, and I'm kind of like, you know, pulling it back in. Like, ha, ha, ha. But I shared it, and I knew there was something in it, I, but I just knew what it was. And so I was like, glass dimly, there may be something else, you know. Um, maybe I end up getting into chess, and like, I'm really good with using the bishop. I don't know. Um, so how intriguing it is that, again, this took 20 years to play out. I didn't, like, run my life by it. I didn't make it, you know, work my life. 
But intriguing was when, I, when Catherine looked back after my consecration, when I was consecrated a bishop, I was not consecrated a bishop in Tanzania. I had that wrong. But one of my chief consecrators was a Nigerian. And we went, okay. I was glassed dimly. I was immature. But I actually picked up on two important things, that I would be called into an Episcopal ministry. And, at the sort of, and part and parcel to that calling would actually be, I had the wrong side of the continent, would be Africa. And actually, it would be a Nigerian bishop who would lay hands on me. Isn't that interesting? So, and again, it, all that did later was consult. It just consoled. And I didn't use it to catalyze a new thing in my, my life. I was like, no, I got to just like, you know, go to bishop school. Um, or like, let like my priest know. Just want, you, just want you to know I'm going to be a bishop. I mean, you haven't made me a priest yet. You're taking forever to make me a priest. Um, I'm not the only one who takes forever to make people priests, I promise. Um, you're taking forever to make me a priest. Um, I'm going to be a bishop. I'll just move me into that office right away. Thank God I didn't do that. Okay. Matt. Yeah. Right, right. Totally. Yeah, so life and death, as I mentioned, I think is, is a key one to be especially careful in. Um, I think, again, in some circumstances it may be appropriate. I think how we communicate promises to others need, need to be handled with discretion. Again, I wouldn't want to not communicate a promise that God was prophetically giving to somebody to give them hope. At the same time, um, that needs to be carefully discerned because we may, in our own heart for them or compassion, want to prophetically minister a promise that isn't maybe what God is fully saying. So how we, how, uh, um, here, here's one. Uh, that's a great question. Around marriage. Like we need to be careful there. So um, now it may be like, uh, Kath and I will get sometimes prophetic impressions for our sheep here at Resurrection. Oh, I, you know, I think I was maybe going to do something in his life, do something in her life. Um, we are, even in our experience and our trust relationship with many, extremely discreet about ever sharing that, right? Um, because if it is of the Lord, it may begin to happen. So we'll often use that more as a, in a consoling way than a catalyzing way. It's already happening. Oh, we had a sense this might happen, as opposed to this is going to happen. Um, and you move into like the, the realm of the affection of the heart with a man or a woman who wants to be married and isn't married. Like, now we're into a very delicate place. So I think, I think around marriage promises would be a place I'd be very careful. Um, I think around health, not just life and death, but just around health. Again, a place of incredible intimacy, right? Like our health and our lives are very intimately interconnected. Um, so to make promises around how God might work in someone's health, again, if you receive a word like that, you can hardly discern it. You just so want it to be true, like particularly if it's for better health. You just want it to be true. And yet we know that there are circumstances in which the Lord has allowed chronic health conditions as thorns in the flesh, as disciplines. We, we know that that is part of the, the scriptural picture and the picture of the church. So I think around health, I also want to be um, careful and, uh, and discreet. Any other thoughts from you guys? That's a great question. That's something that I struggle with. I'm often scared to just not share things with yeah. people, and I try to always stay closer with people. Yeah. Um, so that was even something that was strange during my calling. I got the word for 
together, it was a funny yeah. nod to him and sort of how to know what to share and mm. how to try to do that. Mm. It is. It is hard. Um, yeah, I think, I think generally we want to err on the side of sharing it, but providing that sharing, which you would do, Christy, very carefully, but providing that sharing in a way that allows somebody to then employ their volitional will. So I think we share it, and then, and then, and then, but we share it in a way that their will has plenty of space to engage it or not, pick it up or not. But they have it. Um, but they have it. All right, should we take a little break? Great questions, y'all. This is super fun. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll break for about 20 minutes, and then we'll come back in here, and I'll, I'll get us kind of lined up for our next session. <laughs>